Maybe it's better if I just mute myself. I don't know. Sermon text will be uh, Exodus 19. Read the whole chapter of 25 verses. You'll notice in chapter 20, we hit the Ten Commandments, which is we're giving context to those Ten Commandments this morning. Because of that, I'm going to go ahead and read in chapter 20 after the Ten Commandments, verses 18 to 21 as well. So begin the reading in uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, uh, in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 60. On the third day, uh, sorry, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, set them all, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, And consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. When Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, Because the Lord had descended on it in fire, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come to up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Chapter 20, uh, going down to verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So as was just read, God is about to formally meet with his people that he has redeemed and begin really the second in last section of the book of Exodus, up until this point, we've been focusing on their need of redemption and the act of redemption and them traveling to this mountain. The rest of the book is around this mountain and the giving of the law, the description of the building of the tabernacle, uh, the priests, what are they supposed to wear? What are they supposed to do? All of that is in the context of a relationship. God has redeemed His people. Now we're getting the details of what the rest of the relationship is going to look like after that redemption as God kind of lays out for us His covenant with Moses in the law. But before the giving of the law... This chapter gives us insights into the nature of this relationship between God and the Israelites and God and us. So therefore, our outline, who are we and what are we to do? Then who is our God? And then how are we supposed to respond to Him? Firstly, looking at those two questions, well, who are we and what are we to do in this in this covenant relationship with this one who's redeemed us. Firstly, asking the question, well, who are we? Who are the Israelites? Up to chapter 19. The first four verses answer that question. That they and we are grace recipients. Look at what is highlighted in those first four verses. Uh, Specifically, the the detail in the first two of kind of where they are and where they're going. 
But verse 3, the Lord starts to speak, and He says, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He's starting this dialogue with His people. Not with demands of holiness, so that they could keep covenant relationship with Him. He's reminding them, there are people who have already been redeemed and saved from slavery. He says, you, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. There's grace. There's initiation, not from the Israelites to save themselves or to earn their salvation, but it's been generously gifted. And they're being reminded over and over and over. We saw this in a song in chapter 15. We see this reiterated throughout the Old Testament. This Exodus event has defined them that they did nothing to earn this and received salvation by grace alone. That's who we are too. He goes on in verse 5 with this one little phrase of what he thinks about his people. That they are his treasured possession. In the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the the attack from Amalek, that those things don't change how the Father views His children. He says, you are my treasured possession. He says, all the earth is mine. I own everything, I have everything, and the best thing that I have is you. How, how could He claim to say that? Because of what He just said. You saw what I, you've seen what I've done. You've seen my act of salvation for your sake. But again, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9 is very clear when this phrase is used again that Israel is God's treasured possession. It's not because they were the prettiest people or the most numerous people or the strongest people in that day. They're His because He wanted them to be His. And that's it. It's by grace that they and we have been saved. And they have a a covenant personal relationship as verse 4 ended. I've, I've brought you to myself. That was the goal. But what are we supposed to do if that's who we are? As People who don't have to earn. People who don't have to have salvation by works. In verse 5, it says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey. Which looks like legalism and works-based salvation. Absolutely not. Because of everything that I just said. Everything that's in verse 4. God has expectations on His children. Obedience. The call to obedience is not legalism. It would be if God was saying, 
I will save you out of Egypt if you obey enough. But he didn't do that. He saved his people. Then he gives them the law. Grace precedes law, but requires obedience. That's the context of next week's sermon as I start the Ten Commandments just in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. So I don't want to steal too much of my own thunder. But this is not legalism and it's not justification plus works either, as some of our Catholic friends might argue. Grace is the motivation for good works. Good works are the fruit of grace. Heidelberg Catechism 64, talking about the doctrine of faith, says, But does not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. It will happen. So God is saying to Moses, because I've redeemed this people, I have expectations of them as my children. What are those expectations? What are we going to be like? He mentions us being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And both of those are phrases that modify what we just talked about as a treasured possession. What is a treasured possession of God going to look like? How are we going to act? as those who have been redeemed. A kingdom of priests uh, used by Peter in the New Testament elsewhere in this book is very common, very confusing. Uh, A priest uh, whose office is not conflated in this concept of kingdom of priests serves God. we, We think about the office of priest in the Old Testament. They're uh, bringing God to the people through their teaching. They're bringing the people to God through uh, the, clean, the cleanliness laws, through uh, the sacrificial system, their, their function, which is going to be discussed in the book of Leviticus. It's going to be discussed slightly later in the book of Exodus. But part of what God is saying is that the ministry of the priest is to be a blessing to the whole nation that they would be, in a sense, priests themselves to the world. They're about to move from Sinai into the land of Canaan, where many have heard of the Lord, like Rahab. But what does it look like to know the Lord? What does it look like to serve the Lord? Are there people who could tell us about the Lord? Well, yes, there's a whole kingdom coming to be your neighbor, equipped through their priests, the kingdom of priests themselves. The world's access to God will be through these Israelites as they are equipped and enabled. Psalm 67 makes this connection between all of these Israelites becoming priests, in a sense, and being a blessing to the nations. Because Psalm 67 verses 1 and 2 say this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. That's almost the exact phrasing of the priest Aaron's 
benediction in number six, which only the priesthood would be able to deliver to the people. But it continues. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. So the covenant that God is making with Moses, with this kingdom of priests, is not just insular and not to make one big happy family that has no connection or interest to the rest of the world. No, that would be against the covenant with Abraham. Because all of his descendants are supposed to do what? To bless the nations. That covenant is continuing through Moses. That as the people hear the word, as they obey the word amongst their neighbors, as they share the word, other people are brought in like Rahab will be, who did not know the Lord or did not know what it looked like to receive cleansing or forgiveness. But this kingdom of priests will be outward facing as grace recipients. But then it also says that they are going to be holy, a holy nation. There's not a caveat there. Holy on Sunday. Holy while not at work. Holy while not on the sports field. There's no caveat. Holiness is for all of life. In every instance, as defined by God himself, through obedience to his revealed will. This is a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, who are grace recipients, who are called to obey their Redeemer. If that sounds familiar, that's us. We are grace recipients. We've earned nothing. We couldn't earn anything from God Himself. He's given us everything. But He's called us as a kingdom of priests to bless the nations among us, but to also live lives of holiness and obedience, which is further fleshed out when we look at who God is. That's who we are and what we are to do. But who is God? In this upcoming interaction between this God and His people, that's next. Uh, There's two things. Uh, In verses 10 to 15, and somewhat in 20 to 25... God is holy, and He deserves our total allegiance. Where do we see this? If you look at verse 10, we have a very interesting situation. Where before God comes to them, God says to Moses, hey, you're going to have to tell the people, they need to clean themselves up. They're kind of dirty. I'm not looking at anyone's eyes right now. They've they've got to actually wash their garments before they can entertain an interaction with God. They can't come up to certain parts of the mountain where God is going to be. They can't, nor their animals, touch the mountain. They'll be shot or stoned. 
Why? Why the law of that? It's because he's that holy. Now, when we look at the Old Testament law, as a principle that we need to keep in mind, that we will keep in mind for the rest of the book, the law is a window into the heart of the lawgiver. The law is a window into the heart of the lawgiver. God is not telling these people capriciously, making something up to jump through legalistic hoops. Hey, wash yourself. That sounds like a good idea. They have to go through all of this. And you, you will see, uh, looking at verses 20 through 25, kind of the reminders to Moses. Three times God tells him, and go back down the mountain and tell the people. They can't come this far. No, you can't have the priests come up. You can bring Aaron up. Go back down the mountain and tell them this. Tell them this. He's that pure. He's that perfect. He's that holy. He's dangerous because he's God. And, and by default, what does that say about us? We're not that holy. Even as God's people, we can't approach God however we want. We can't worship God however we want. We can't pick and choose his word however we want. He's God. He gets to tell us what to do. He's perfect. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. But also, it's His holiness that is the standard for our holiness. Because in Leviticus 19, when He says, love your neighbor as yourself, He also says, be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. So, in reflecting on just these minute details of clothes washing, we're reminded He is holy. I I am not perfectly holy. My obedience is based on His character in His Word, not based on what's currently socially acceptable for either political party. Only what this holy God says. He is the only one who is holy who can define these things for us. But that's His character. Perfection. Righteousness. Holiness. But then verse 15. uh, The ESV Maybe a little bit easier to read in public. It says, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. There's nothing wrong with women. There's something a little more explicit in the NIV. It's talking about marital relations and the abstaining thereof before the third day arrives. So, so again, let's apply the principle. What relevance does that have to me in the 21st century post-Christ and the New Covenant? And Why is this in here? Why are we even talking about it? Well, this reveals, this law reveals something about the heart of the Lord. God is telling spouses to refrain from this momentarily. And that act itself, in the picture of marriage in a covenant, 
also a covenant relationship that pictures total unity and allegiance in totality. Total vulnerability, total transparency, total trust, total dedication that's not given to another person in the entire world. Those are ultimately what God deserves above anybody else. Even if we're married, God comes before spouse, God comes before child, God comes before grandchild, God comes before everything as our Redeemer. We will be better grandparents, better friends, better spouses, better parents by doing that. Now, there also could be other implications for this with regard to ritual cleansing and purity before going into the presence of God, which will be touched on in the book of Leviticus. But I agree, as usually is the case with John Calvin, when he says, For although there is nothing polluting or contaminating in the marriage bed, yet the Israelites were to be reminded that all earthly cares were as much as possible to be renounced and all carnal affections to be put away, that they might give their entire attention to the hearing of the law. There's a spiritual component to what is being required in verse 15 that stretches throughout all of their life, not simply their married life, that God deserves total allegiance. The law, that little phrase teaches that. As Dr. Chris Wright will say, in totality with the law, ritual cleanness from the kitchen to the sanctuary was meant to symbolize God's greater requirement of moral integrity, social justice, and covenant loyalty. He's saying that when you're coming as a community into my presence, where is your allegiance first and foremost prioritized? Is it in your family? Is it in your job? Is it in your retirement account? Is it in your politics? Is it in your race? Or is it in me? I don't share. And I determine all other allegiances because I'm your Redeemer. Now, we don't wash or refrain from things for ritual purity anymore, but what a reminder as these Israelites are preparing to approach God on Mount Sinai of how holy He is, how holy we aren't, and how we constantly need to repent of our sins as we strive to live as a holy nation, who are reflecting His holiness. Again, He's the standard of how we are supposed to live. We are image bearers, not of ourselves, not of our communities, ultimately, but of God, our Creator. And so there needs to be the awareness, even as believers, of how we have fallen short, of how we sin in thought, word, and deed, 
and how there needs to be a lifestyle repentance. But how further do these people respond to this interaction? Even just these warnings of what's about to happen before it happens, how they're supposed to prepare totally, who they are, what are they supposed to do, and who is the God they're about to encounter. There's a couple of things in how they respond. If you, if you look at chapter 20 after the Ten Commandments are given and after this thing has already happened, we, we see in chapter 19 that when it happens, they, they fear, they tremble. Uh, we see that again, though, very explicitly, verses 18 to 21 of chapter 20, that there is the response of fear. That's a great response. It's a terrible response to hear all these warnings about, about God's holiness, about His law, and to be so lackluster that we don't even care. To be so apathetic about this God and what He has done for us. There's no apathy in these people. There is fear. However, there's a caveat to that fear because it says that they were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. They even say to Moses, don't let him speak to us. You speak to us, lest we die. But Moses says to them, don't fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The fear is not of the circumstances of the threat of death, the thunder, the trumpet that blows out of nowhere, the, the thunder clouds forming. No, no, don't, don't fear those circumstances. Fear the living, holy God who's in your midst that you would obey Him for who He really is. He's, he's come to test you, in a sense, to give you the law, show you how to obey, that you would obey, that you wouldn't fear other stuff in your life, but that you would have a holy, reverent fear of how holy He is, that you would take Him seriously, that you would repent of your sin, that your life would change. That is the kind of fear that Moses is telling them. This is all in the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments, which I will be harping on greatly for the next several months. But Moses is trying to focus their attention on the person, on God himself. Not on these circumstances, but that they would fear. So that they would actually do something, that they would obey. Boy, they, they need it. You just saw them in the, in the wilderness, they just keep complaining and groaning. I need it too. The Lord is, is real. He's really this holy. If He's redeemed you, He really He really loves you as His treasured possession, but He's given commands for us to obey, that we would obey. But why would we fear Him? Why would we serve Him? Why would we obey Him? Finally, brothers and sisters, it's because He comes down. Why is our response a holy fear leading to obedience? He actually comes down. He does, 
He, he does what he says he's going to do. He doesn't just say, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about coming down the mountain, do all these things in case I do. He actually does. Back in chapter 19, in verses uh, 16 to 19, there's the, the presence of God coming down on the mountain. It's a theophany or appearance of God, God himself. He keeps his word. He comes down. He has done all of this so that he can be with them. He comes down in chapter 19 because they are his treasured possession. He tells them not to touch the mountain. He tells them only to send up Moses and Aaron. He tells them, refrain from certain things, wash your clothes, not out of tedious legalism, but because he loves them. He doesn't want to destroy them or kill them. He's that holy but he still wants to be in their presence. He comes down. He loves them enough to not only redeem them, but to have an ongoing relationship. Which is what we are about to discuss in a few weeks in the season of Advent. When love itself comes down again in a manger as God's treasured possession. He loved the world so much, gave his only son, who is our better priest, who made the perfect sacrifice already, so that you and I don't have to walk up in here and have me assess whether or not your washing machine is working. Thankfully, I don't have to pull out a knife and do a sacrifice. There's no more blood. The blood's been spilt. The redemption has already been experienced and enjoyed. We're here as a response of gratitude and worship. Why? Because He came down. Our Redeemer not only redeemed us, but He did so by entering into the flesh. Becoming man to make the perfect sacrifice for us, his sheep, on the cross. So what? So that we would not only know him as our redeemer, but that as a kingdom of priests, as Christ's covenant, the nations would be blessed. We would interact with our neighbors and non-Christian friends, with the word of the Lord that we know, with the cleansing of the blood of Christ that we have been given from our great high priest, that the nations would know, that they would be converted, that we would walk in holiness, not in perfection, but through repentance. We will never do those things unless we go back and focus on the grace that we have already received. For that's the only motivation for ongoing holiness. And we've been given it. Let us pray together. Lord Christ, we we ask you now that you would indeed give us grace upon grace as we read your word. Feel convicted of our sin and our lack of holiness. 
but I recognize you have called us into a covenantal relationship with you who are holy. You have washed us white as snow, Jesus, in the blood of your cross. You have clothed us with garments of righteousness, as Isaiah says, that we would walk in holiness. Encourage us. This day we pray in our obedience. Amen.